Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Stories from the Heart, the 10 years after Katrina and Rita session. Um, this is being recorded. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to basically, it's a roundtable discussion. We'll, uh, each of us will uh, present uh, some information about our involvement uh, what, with the heart efforts and some background information. Then we're going to open it up for a kind of a candid discussion. But how that works with recording then is if you ask a question, they're not going to hear your question. So we have to repeat that question and try to kind of put that together. So um, Michelle, who's here, is really good at doing that. I am not, but we'll make it work anyhow. Okay, so uh, 10 years ago, 2005, the Gulf Coast was hammered by a couple of hurricanes, uh, almost back to back, uh, Katrina and Rita. Uh, AASLH, the organization that's having its conference here, uh, was actively involved, uh, working with a number of other groups in dispatching uh, eight history emergency assistance recovery teams in to evaluate the damage to these cultural resources. And in some cases, this was a, uh, an evaluation filling out paperwork, uh, and in other cases, it was actually doing mitigation. Our panel today is myself. Uh, each of us was involved in, in different ways. Uh, I'm Vincent Murray. Uh, I'm with Arizona Historical Research out of Phoenix, Arizona. We have Michelle Zupan, who works for the Watson Brown Foundation as the curator and directory of Hickory Hill. That's in Georgia. We have uh, Dr. John Durrell, consultant with uh, Durrell Consulting Partners, and that's in Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, he's also, you might be familiar with him, he does the uh, uh, SHA workshops as well. So you might have seen him at those. And lastly, we have Patrick Hotard, who's the executive director of the Southern Arkansas Historical Foundation and Newton Humps Museum in El Dorado, Arkansas. Uh, at this time, uh, uh, 10 years ago, Patrick was the director of the Beauvoir House uh, when it was damaged by Katrina and oversaw the external repairs. Uh, also on our program was originally Steve Schulman, uh, who was the project uh, director Unfortunately, Steve uh, has taken ill and uh, wasn't able to attend, but we do wish him well. For the unfamiliar, <coughs> Hurricane Katrina. Of course, we've probably heard a lot about it on the news. Uh, I came ashore uh, early in the morning on August 29, 2005. At landfall, it was rated as a Category 4 hurricane. It had sustained winds of over 100 miles per hour. Uh, when it did come ashore, it was 400 miles wide, which, you know, to kind of put in perspective, if you're familiar with your map of the United States, that's almost the width of the state of Arizona. Um, as it made its landfall, the, the uh, front right quadrant of the storm, which actually had the strongest winds, slammed directly into uh, Gulfport and Biloxi, Mississippi. So they sustained initially the, the wind damage, but it also had an incredibly large a uh, storm surge that ranged anywhere from 10 to 28 feet high. And that was devastating the coastal areas as well uh, through southeastern Louisiana and Mississippi. And then, of course, we've all heard about what was going on in New Orleans. They had the, the levees there, which I think were around 9 or 10 feet tall, and they had a 28-foot storm surge then basically breaching over the top of that, compounded by the fact that they had, during that same time, two feet of rain that was coming down on top of it. So that's where it just basically submerged uh, the city, which was a lot of it was already uh, below sea level. Um, so the levee breached a number of places, which just allowed the ocean to come in uh, from, from the Gulf. 
And then uh, I think there was, gosh, I want to say probably close to 50 breaches within the levee. So it wasn't just there was one that you could go in and patch and you could pump the water out, but you actually had a number of them that were patched that uh, required that. According to the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, Katrina was the most destructive storm in the United States history, causing $108 billion in damage. It was followed a month later by Hurricane Rita, which was also an incredibly powerful storm. I'm trying to do this with my PowerPoint here. Um, Rita was also uh, incredibly powerful. Uh, it came about a month later as a tropical cyclone and another storm that came right after that as well, Wilma, which didn't have as much damaging effect. Uh, those three storms within one season uh, were three of the six most powerful storms that have ever uh, hit the North American continent. So if that gives you kind of an idea of what was going on with that. Anyhow, so about the heart teams, uh, the uh, history recover, emergency assistant recovery teams. So AASLH, working with a number of other partners, put together uh, eight teams. Uh, they were basically teams of four, I think with the exception of uh, team one in Louisiana. And they consisted of uh, conservators who would know how to, to mitigate damage to, to documents and artifacts and museum specialists as well that would be able to, to work on the ground uh, to, to try to resolve some of the issues and also to try to document some of these things. Um, like I said, there was four teams in Louisiana, four teams that were in Mississippi. They were spread out over a month, so you would have a team in one location or the, or the other for a week, and then they would be uh, matched up with another team. Uh, the teams were pretty much all volunteers. While some of them were paid by the institutions that sent them in, others were people that basically had the experience but came on their own dime, in a sense, uh, using their vacation time to, to try to put in the effort. In the case of the conservators, they actually brought their own equipment, to, to do the mitigation. Um, there was money that was provided to help them with transportation costs and to reimburse them with expenses, but nobody was really salaried in doing this. So the people that were out there for you know seven to 10 days were really just doing it on their own with little knowledge of what to anticipate once they, they got there. I was involved in team two uh, that came in uh, and basically the, the scenario for, for getting involved was I received a call from Terry Davis uh, who was the uh, CEO at the, of uh, uh, ASLH at the time, and she said, we're putting together these teams. Can you help? Would you be willing to, to take a week of your time and, and go in and try to assist us on this? Now, I'm not a conservator, and I'm not a museum specialist. Uh, I did start my business, and I had some available time that I could work out, and I said, sure, I'm not sure what you would want me to do, but I'm, I'm willing to volunteer. We had the conference then, uh, 2005, which was in Pittsburgh. At the beginning of the conference, they were talking about Team 1 who had gotten into Louisiana. Uh, we were provided in both Mississippi and Louisiana of, uh, a motorhome and a uh, minivan that we could utilize because you couldn't find hotels because, I mean, everything's damaged. Uh, hotels, if they were available, were filled up by, you know, FEMA employees and other employee, uh, government uh, institutions, et cetera, that were there on the ground. So the motorhomes you know, would provide you a place to live, and then you would also have this uh, minivan uh, that you could travel with. So we received the report back early uh, at the beginning of the conference that Team 1's hit the ground, they're working, everything's great, everybody's getting along, it's wonderful. Then Rita comes in while they're still there. And they lost communication with them, and we weren't sure what was going on. I was hoping to, you know, everything was okay, and was just trying to find out uh, what to anticipate. And I'd gotten back from Pittsburgh, and I got the call, and they said, well, we found Team 1, everybody's okay. 
the motorhome is waiting for you at a gator farm. I said, gator farm? Wow, I hadn't really thought about gator farm. I, I have a lot of mosquito repellent. I don't think that's going to work for me. So that was pretty much kind of my level of preparedness for this, of not really being sure uh, what to anticipate. But I flew out to, to Baton Rouge, uh, set up a, a schedule to meet with some local museum people from the Louisiana State uh, Museum Association, uh, set up an appointment with FEMA, uh, drove up uh, to the airport, picked up a person at Baton Rouge, picked up another one at, at the New Orleans airport, and then came back, picked up another at Baton Rouge, assembled my team, uh, met with FEMA, uh, who told me right off, you can't get into New Orleans because we, the, the military's got it blocked off. I said, well, uh, I was just there yesterday picking up one of my team members. They said, really? And you didn't have a problem with snipers? It's like, snipers? Are you kidding? <laughs> it was really kind of into this Wild West kind of mentality thing of not really being sure of what's going on because nobody really knew exactly what's going on. Communication was very uh, sparse. Uh, I had T-Mobile. Uh, which only worked when the military was in the area. So I could make a phone call if a military convoy was going by. And we all had different cell phones, and you never knew what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. Most of the places we went into, they didn't have electricity. Uh, I left Phoenix. It was 105 degrees. Uh, it was the high. The low, I think, was something like 92. Uh, maybe, no, I think it was a little less than that. I think it was 82 at night. Uh, but getting into New Orleans where it was like 95 degrees, and at night it was like 92 degrees. I, I was miserable. You know, I, I came from a hot place, but I wasn't used to that level of humidity. And I, I could just imagine uh, what people were feeling themselves, not having any type of electricity to you know, put on fans and everything else. It's not like everybody has generators, and, and, uh, and it's just a very sticky and unfortunate environment. So once we met with FEMA, we, we came up with this game plan. We would go over the list of, of all of these museums and cultural resources in the area, and we would drive out and we would try to make contact with people and see how they were doing. So our first day we went out to the plantations and only to discover that the plantations really hadn't been hit very hard. Their biggest thing was that they were uh, in fear of losing all of their tourism industry for the summer because there were no hotels that anybody could actually stay in. Uh, so we decided we would try to come up with a different scenario uh, which really was going down a list and cold calling all of these different uh, cultural institutions till we could get somebody on the phone and talk with them about any types of problems that they had. And if they said, yes, we have a problem, we need your help, we would drive out to that location and on the way we would try to pick up any of these others that are on the list that we could identify in the map. So we would try to get into one location, work with them to mitigate problems, but also try to take photographs and fill out documentation on anything else we could find since we just happened to be in the area. Now we uh, were provided magnetic signs uh, that we had on the doors that basically said what we were doing. They were stolen the first day we were there, so that didn't help. Um, most of the people that we talked to didn't really realize what, uh, what we were out there until we were explaining to them. Uh, and, and one of the real issues was that you know, they couldn't do anything about their own cultural institutions because they were trying to do stuff for their families and their homes. I mean, they, they were suffering the same way with, with their, their residences that they were suffering from with the museums and libraries and everything else. So they were uh, very challenged on this. Um, I was fortunate that we had a local business person that allowed me to hook up the motorhome for electricity and, and to drain the, uh, the uh, waste tank. Uh, because that was one of the issues that Team One also had being stuck there with Rita. In fact, they actually abandoned the motorhome and moved in with some of the, the people that lived there, which kind of became a, 
a problem for them too because people were getting short on food and everything else. I mean, you couldn't just go out and shop and find things. There weren't restaurants and things in that order. So as I was taking the teams out to do these, I was trying to identify places you could get gas, roads that would be open, roads that would be closed, that kind of thing. Um, just really getting logistics together because we didn't know. There was nobody out there to tell us anything and was hoping that that would work out best for us. By the time we were finished, a, a week later, we had uh, basically done um, assessments on 27 institutions and done mitigation, basically worked on specific collections to remove mold or, or dry out documents and that type of thing on about a half a dozen, which doesn't really seem like a lot, but we were kind of setting up the, 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 the footwork for what the next people would be able to do and how they would go about doing that. So I felt it was a pretty good accomplishment. Um, after all was said and done, I just went home. I turned everything over to the, the next person who came in to replace me. Uh, but I actually could sit down with them, give them a map and say, here's where you can find gas, here's where you can get food, here's your contacts, here's what works, here's what doesn't work. Hopefully you guys all have different cell phone services because you're not going to have anything consistent anywhere you have. And goodbye and have a nice day and wish them the best of luck. And, and so each team that came in through Louisiana was a little more productive then because they actually didn't have to, to worry about the logistics. Now, I was just the guy that gets the phone call to kind of run in. There was a whole backstory about how they came up with this idea of doing these, these uh, heart teams, and the person that could probably tell us the most about that will be the next person talking, which is Michelle Zipan. So I'll just turn it directly over to her. Get a little further. Right, Here we go. go. Okay, yeah, you can go ahead and click into the next slide. That's okay. Great. Thanks. All right, well, I am Michelle Zupan, and... Um, I'm going to tell you just a little bit about the organization I work for. Uh, we are the third largest private operating foundation in the state of Georgia. Uh, my involvement with uh, this whole effort actually started on the day that Katrina was still blasting the Gulf Coast. I had uh, the CNN coverage on a 1970s console television set that we have in our historic house, you know, just watching uh, everyone floating around, and, and fairly soon the phone rang. And it was my boss, our foundation president. And his father was on his other line. His father was an um, amateur Civil War historian, but a very avid hi history buff. And he was basically screaming through the phone line, do you know that Civil War sites are being destroyed? What are you going to do about it? And uh, we didn't argue with our former chairman too much. Uh, rest his soul, he has no past. Um, he had enough money to put some impetus behind his, uh, his great ire. And so I said, okay, okay, just let me think about this. So I called Terry Davis, and I had Terry on one phone line and my boss on the other, and the Hart teams were born. Terry was able to calm passions because my boss uh, and his father were literally ready to grab refrigerated trucks and load up with supplies and drive into Mississippi that afternoon. Uh, but Terry got them all calmed down and corralled everyone into something that was probably, in retrospect, the best thing we could possibly put together. Uh, next slide. So with $50,000 from Watson Brown, plus funding from the Discovery Channel and the private donors, uh, many of whom are at this conference, uh, off we went. Uh, I was placed on Mississippi Team 4. Uh, you'll be hearing from my team leader very shortly. Uh, we were the last ones in and the last ones out. Uh, we were equipped with an RV, with a computer, a printer, and whatever supplies that we had brought, including buckets of deep woods off. Now, overwhelming doesn't really begin to touch the mental gymnastics that you go through when you come into a situation like this. Things felt really normal. We flew into Jackson, it all looked fine. 
the closer we got to the coast, we would see a tree down here, a roof damage over here. And then we came into Hattiesburg, and all bets were off after that. Between Hattiesburg and the coast, it got quieter and quieter and quieter in the RV. As we drove street by street, we couldn't believe this was a reality that we were seeing. And there was just too much damage. Next slide. So we had been told that we were to assess. And we quickly learned that these people were sick of being assessed. They were annoyed that New Orleans was receiving all the attention. Um, they, all the political, all the media, all of that was across the river. And as uh, Vince already pointed out, the eye of Katrina passed directly over Mississippi. It didn't pass over New Orleans, it passed over Mississippi. So fortunately, Team Four, we were comprised of a bunch of people that don't follow the rules very well. <laughs> Thanks, Don. <laughs> Uh, so we leapt in with both feet, um, all, all of the feet on our team, and we began helping where and when we could. We would drag collections out, start them drawing. We would just anger anyone we could get to take notice of us, especially the state archives, to try and get collections into frozen storage. Not yesterday, not next week, not tomorrow, now, right this minute. And we were fairly successful with that. John is going to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, along the way, I kept a travel diary of sorts. Um, often the entries were really rants of mine uh, about FEMA officials and the bureaucracy we were dealing with, which we were encountering at every single turn. Uh, but oftentimes it got a little reflective. Next slide. So my diary sometimes consisted of things that people told us. <coughs> Speaking for myself, I have incredibly vivid memories of our time on the Gulf Coast. I don't remember everyone's names, but I do remember their faces. You know, incredibly haggard, exhausted, frustrated, and I remember the things that they said to us. Time and again, it was everyone has forgotten about us. New Orleans still has buildings standing. The eye passed over our town. The residents also instinctively knew in Mississippi that just like time and time again before, only a state as poor as Mississippi was going to have to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And they were. They leapt in and started working immediately after the storm to rebuild their areas. In addition to the people, I remember the smells. The smell of death in some places, of oil on the ocean, of rotting vegetation, but also the strange smell of spring in late August early to early October. Trees that had been just wiped clean of their leaves were beginning to leaf out again. And it smelled suspiciously of spring. Next slide. So when I sat down to actually catalog the losses in Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, I was again reminded of the vast differences in those three states and the impacts of Hurricane Katrina and Rita on those states. Here's a list of the National Register buildings and landmarks that were lost in Mississippi that day. Now this is only National Register structures. There will probably never be a true accounting of what we lost that was just truly historic. Next slide. The Mississippi Shippo's office has done something that is both wonderful and sad. They have marked the sites where some of the historic structures once stood. Tullus Toledano, the Father Ryan House, Grass Lawn, the historic Coast Guard Barracks. A total of 29 markers have been installed in vacant fields. 
Alabama, often forgotten in Katrina conversations, was not spared the actual wrath of the storm. They lost two wonderful National Register structures and a few dozen non-National Register buildings. They also had significant damage to historic towns and structures, including those that float. Next slide. The USS Alabama, docked in Mobile Bay, developed a six-degree list. Not an easy thing to correct in a battleship. Viola Battery, which you might remember from the movie Forrest Gump, was an incredibly historic fishing, crabbing, and shrimping village, made famous in that movie. And it was nearly wiped from the map. The photos on the right are of the, the boats, that's all Viola Battery. Okay, next slide. Louisiana didn't keep a tally, oddly enough, of what they actually lost. I couldn't find it anywhere. These I pulled from a website of lighthouse aficionados. Both of these were National Register lights. The Chandler light, which is the, the one on the lower right here, was actually rebuilt from a previous storm. So that was re reconstructed in the 60s. Next slide. Louisiana has not erected any markers to what was lost. Uh, instead, they put up a lot of black granite monuments that look just like this at cemeteries, universities, and in other locations throughout the state. Next slide. We were really ill-prepared for this, and in many ways, we are still ill-prepared. The number of museums without any form of disaster or evacuation plan is still far too high. One thing that we discovered during and after the disasters of Katrina and Rita was that efforts were being duplicated. There was no nationwide coordination at all. Winterthur had a team there, National Park Service had a team, so did the SAA and multiple other organizations duplicating our efforts. Now, the, emergence, excuse me, the Heritage Emergency National Task Force, can't get that one out, was in existence in 2005, but they couldn't get boots on the ground quick enough to do anything about Rita and Katrina. So as part of the Katrina response, the AIC started the Alliance for Response, but only a handful of cities have actually formed disaster response groups from that Alliance for Response. So I did a little investigating to see where those were. We have two of them in Georgia, one in Atlanta, one in Savannah. We haven't been hit by a major hurricane in about 42 years. <laughs> um, though most of the focus of these groups is on libraries and archives, not on museums and historic sites. So that still leaves us a little high and dry. Only two disaster response alliances have been formed on the Gulf Coast, one in Houston and one in Miami, none in between. When I looked for anything directly dealing with the recovery of cultural materials on the Louisiana State website, I found a disaster response plan dated 1999, and a draft report of the recovery of Katrina-damaged buildings, dated 2013, nothing updated since. Mississippi has been much more proactive, and I give them a lot of props for what they have done. It's all come through EMDA, from the Mississippi Department <coughs> of Archives and History. Uh, they are doing preservation boot camps. They're traveling around the state, and they're training local governments in disaster planning and response, which include on-site and webinar options. Uh, they are addressing the needs of cultural institutions. We have no data on who is actually attending these, however. Next slide. I recently returned from the Gulf Coast, a Katrina plus 10 visit, if you will. 
and we're still not ready. If a hurricane hits tomorrow in the same area, we're still not ready. In Mississippi, that had a 30-foot storm surge, sites that were destroyed near the beach have been reconstructed, but not so much as a foot higher than they were before. It's not gonna help in a 30-foot storm surge. The municipalities have added some really unsightly pumps and drainage channels that run from neighborhoods right to the beach. The beaches still have tar on them from the Deepwater Horizon disaster that followed just a few years on the heels of Katrina. In Louisiana, they're trying to mitigate 100 years of bad engineering to reinforce levees, to redirect water, and to dredge sediment. Rebuilt structures are not much higher off the ground than they were pre-Katrina. A few more places have hurricane shutters, but those don't help with flooding. So we must not only get better at responding to disasters, we must get better at preparing for disasters. So I'm gonna turn it over to John Durrell. He was the team leader for Mississippi Team 4, and he's gonna look in depth at one of the sites that we worked with. Thanks, Michelle. Um, so Team 4 arrives in uh, Mississippi down on the uh, Gulf Shore um, a month after the storm. Um, we, and we, by then, teams one, two, and three, and Bev Tyler's here, he was leader of team two, had documented a lot of the damage, a lot of the historical properties and museums that had been severely damaged um, with a lot of photography and so forth. Um, but, so in a, in a way we're kind of checking up, cleaning up, um, but oddly enough, nobody had actually gone into past Christiane. Now, past Christiane is um, a town along the Gulf Coast that runs about three miles along the coast and then inland from there. Uh, and to give you an ex a sense of the extent of damage, Every building for three blocks inland was destroyed. Beyond three blocks, you then got um, buildings damaged here, damaged here, damaged here. So this is a this is City Hall as we found it um, in a in a FEMA tent um, a month after the storm, um, and um, one of the other things that at that time. There was no way of knowing where historic properties were or getting in touch with the people who are responsible. The Past Christian Historical Society is an all-volunteer-run organization. They don't appear on some master list. Now they do. IMLS is now kind of tallied. But at the time, it was going into a place and saying, are there any historic properties around here that we could have a look at? So next slide. We um, went into the, the FEMA tent where well, we had lunch. Uh, Sue Blackney, one of our conservators, is there on the lower left. Uh, and we just started asking around, and we discovered uh, the Past Christian Historical Society um, had been destroyed. Uh, and we got the names and were able to track down some of the volunteers, including the board president, uh, and got them to, um, to meet us at the site of the Historical Society. Next slide. So this is a picture of the Historical Society uh, before the storm. This is a 1920s era bank building that they had uh, 
uh, preserved and uh, set up their uh, museum in. It opened uh, as the uh, Historical Society Museum in 1989. Pass Christiane is a kind of a resort community and a small commercial port and fishing port, mostly tourist uh, resort. Next slide. This is the way we found the Historical Society. So the bank building, you can see there the slab that Michelle and the board president are standing on. That was the floor of the bank building. The only thing that survived was the uh, bank vault, where they had stored some of their uh, collections. Um, but this was a month after the storm, so the material had been sitting in the bank vault for a month in 90 degree weather, soaking wet. Um, so a lot of damage and a lot of mold. Um, next slide. This is the kind of the condition inside of the vault um, at the time. Next slide. And here's Paul Messier, uh, one of our conservators, getting ready to go in uh, and um, uh, bring the material out. The volunteers who took care of this place had been dealing with their own disappeared houses and their scattered families and their own struggle. They hadn't had time nor inclination when we, they were so demoralized when we started talking to them about the historical society. Basically said, that place is lost. We don't have time to deal with that. But we encouraged them and with our offer of manpower and, and advice and actually getting there and doing it alongside of them, they were able to um, um, uh, step up and help. So, uh, next slide. So here's Michelle. Um, we took the materials out of the vault. Fortunately, we had nice dry weather for the four or five days we were there. We were able to spread it out, let it uh, start to air dry. Next slide. Um, here's some of the materials that came out. Uh, in the scheme of things, it's you know not really highly valuable. It might not measure up to great collections and other organizations, but this is what they had left. They had newspapers, some documents, some ledger books, some records. Um, ironically, uh, one of the uh, pieces, next slide, the headlines from Hurricane Camille uh, uh, in 1969, the last major hurricane to uh, uh, hit the Gulf Coast. Um, an important historical event in that community's history. Next. So we were able to get the um, uh, Mississippi uh, State uh, Archives in Jackson to send a, um, a team down uh, in, a, uh, in a station wagon, box the uh, materials up. It was taken back up to Jackson, um, frozen, uh, and then later um, um, treated by conservators. And about two-thirds of what we were able to salvage has now returned to the Historical Society. That's what they've got left of their collection prior to, um, and so two-thirds of the vault is probably 20% maybe of their collection survived um, the storm. Next, we were happy to, uh, our team received uh, lifetime membership uh, in the uh, Historical Society, they were very grateful. Um, ironically, okay, so next slide. 
this is this was one of the pieces that we salvaged. It talks about their annual tour of homes. And this happened to be from uh, 1989 when one of the homes featured was their newly restored um, museum building. Um, next slide. Annual tour of homes. If you go to the website, you can still see a list for the annual tour of homes. But the catch is, many of them aren't there anymore. This is a, this is a two and a half mile historic district um, that stretched along the shore. Prior to Katrina, there were 135 listed properties within the historic district. 70 of those no longer exist. Next one. <clears throat> so, Pass Christiane has lost a lot. They were able, with FEMA money and uh, property insurance, to build a new historical society on the same location. So it's a nice building. It's not historic, but it's a nice building. They're starting to rebuild the collection. They still get things from families in the area. Um, I talked to Bruce Stinson, who was one of the um, people we worked with 10 years ago, he's still involved, and uh, he says he goes on eBay a lot because there are a lot of postcards uh, from the Gulf Shores and so forth that he's able to buy. Um, so they've got a nice new building. They do an annual tour of home, not homes. <laughs> this year one house was featured uh, as they try to raise money. And this is probably the biggest impact, at least immediately for them. This building, Two stories, kind of um, not hurricane-proof, but maybe hurricane-resistant, and they can move things uh, out. Um, costs three times as much to operate. They used to be operate on a budget of about $10,000. They would raise through their fundraisers and so forth to take care of the building and a uh, few acquisitions. Insurance on this building is $20,000 a year. So their budget, just because of insurance, they've got to, instead of raise $10,000 a year, they've got to raise about $25,000 a year. And they're not quite yet able to do that on a consistent basis. So to recap, they've lost a lot. Um, <clears throat> they've got a new building. <laughs> Is this a kind of unusual story? Or is this a precursor of what could happen? IMLS reports that 25% of the 35,000 uh, museums that's identified in the country are within 60 miles of a coast. The National Trust estimates that 90,000 historic properties, individual historic properties, lie in areas at risk of rising sea levels. AAM singled out global warming as one of the six trends this year that are going to have uh, an impact on um, museums in the near future. So we can learn from this. If nothing else, it's a red flag that um, this is something that we're all going to be dealing with uh, in the <coughs> near future. Patrick Hotard, we met Patrick um, when we were down there. Uh, our team uh, in Mississippi went over to Biloxi 
and um, one of the places, and Michelle especially was uh, eager to visit it, even though previous teams had also visited and took photographs and so forth. Um, this was the uh, home of um, Jefferson Davis after the war, and Patrick was the director, and so I'll let you pick up the story. Oh, thank you. <coughs> yeah, uh, Beauvoir uh, was and is a National Historic Landmark located on the beach right there in Biloxi. Uh, the house, uh, the only thing separating it from the beach in the Gulf of Mexico is the four-lane highway that runs in between it and the Gulf of Mexico. So it was a beach home. It was an antebellum structure, uh, not built by Davis, but by somebody else around circa 1850. And, uh, <clears throat> Davis moved there uh, at an invitation uh, after uh, the war between the states um, and lived there uh, until he died. He eventually purchased it. He died about 1889. Uh, the site itself, uh, if you look at the screen, we won't go to any of the, we keep that one on, on the screen right now, but if you look at the screen itself, don't forget about the image, uh, square it off, that is Beauvoir property. It's a perfect square on and it's about oh, 40 plus contiguous acres. Running through the middle of the property is a bayou called Oyster Bayou. And uh, the historic structures were all south of that bayou, facing the water. As here would be Beauvoir House, be a couple of small cottages, uh, contemporaneous, circa 1850. And then there was a uh, hospital structure, a museum that had once been the Confederate Soldiers Home Hospital, built oh 1920s, let's say, uh, close to them. Okay, brick structure, right, rather large. Uh, then uh, set a little further back, um, it was the new Presidential Library. Okay, that had been built a few years before, um, about oh six seven years before the storm. Uh, two-story structure, of course, modern uh, structure. Then there was the director's residence over here. Okay, this uh, image you're seeing here, this is the house I lived in, the remnants of it. And um, that was something else driving up to see that. <laughs> um, honey, couch is gone. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was, uh, it was, it was uh, very, very interesting. So, Patrick, uh, could you just yes. kind of say you had to evacuate, right? Yes, I was not there during the day of the storm. I evacuated late on the afternoon the night before, and I evacuated to the east. I went, we had in order to get a hotel room. We, my wife was calling while I was helping to button up buildings and stuff like that, and we finally got a hotel room in Albany, Georgia. Anybody here besides me know where Albany, Georgia is? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, a very nice town. Their downtown is actually quite nice if you haven't been there. The point is it's um, not next door to Mississippi. Yeah, at two in the morning. So uh, so we cut across, we stayed in Albany, and to make a long story short, we eventually had to, I had to reevacuate uh, because I had to deposit my family somewhere. So of course I called my parents. Uh, <laughs> And I had to sort of circumnavigate the coast and come back down and drop them off in Jennings, Louisiana. And then my brother got in his pickup truck and we went back down to the coast a couple of days after the storm, and bringing supplies with us. And uh, so 
So I, uh, my security chief had already gotten back and my maintenance chief had stayed because he lived in a house somewhere where it was relatively safe to stay. And uh, I almost stayed actually, and I wouldn't be here today if I had. <laughs> um, I'd be floating out here somewhere. Um, so so that, that is, uh, there are also some additional structures on the back part of Beauvoir's property. And what happened was with the storm, the Gulf of Mexico decided to move, right? So the Gulf of Mexico came up onto the property, brought everything with it, including all the beer cans from the convenience store next door, all right, and the remnants of that convenience store and other structures and buildings, parts of casinos, right? And uh, it came onto Beauvoir's property, and then the Gulf of Mexico went back home, right? Well, it didn't bring all that with it. It left it where? At Beauvoir. All right, y'all remember the images. So we had a debris field, okay, and not just our debris, all right? And in some places, it would have been uh, uh, several feet high, okay? So uh, there's debris fields about over about, I'd say, roughly half of the property. There's debris everywhere, but as far as a contiguous debris field where you could walk across it, about roughly half of the property. And in several places, several feet deep, within the debris field were artifacts from the destroyed first floor of the Presidential Library. Now, this library had been built to specs based on the previous hurricane. <laughs> right? So it wasn't just a thrown together thing, right? He had used the specs of the water levels, right, to build that. And that was, what was that good hurricane? Camille. Camille. Camille, right? Yeah. So that was in the late 60s. 60s, Hurricane Camille. Very powerful storm, but very compact, right? So uh, it had been built to those specs, and that didn't matter <laughs> because the water level was this high, okay? And it just came right through, and it pushed everything out the back, okay? And um, so the main collection storage area and the other exhibits uh, were buried under a pile of rubble and brick that was once the Confederate Museum, that old brick hospital structure I mentioned earlier. It was literally a pile of brick. It looked like a building uh, in Germany after a visit from their friends in the Royal Air Force. Okay, if you've ever seen that footage, you know what I'm talking about. Okay? Uh, people who had been in Vietnam Okay, and people uh, who had been in Iraq would make comments, wow, this is like Iraq, in terms of the damage level in certain areas, okay? When a Vietnam veteran tells me it reminds me, uh, reminds him of a B-52 strike, uh, they don't joke about those sorts of things, all right? So the damage level is, in certain spots, was truly tremendous, but as they can attest, you would go three blocks deep, right, into a community, and be total devastation, and then you'd go another block, and the guy's in his yard of grass, right? And he has a few shingles <coughs> off of his roof. I mean, it was kind of, in that sense, it was very, that was almost unnerving, more unnerving than the actual damage itself had done. Right? Okay, so, our collection that was in the main storage area uh, in the Confederate Museum is buried under rubble, a lot of the exhibits, some of the more important things we were able to get out of those cases, we sort of triaged, and we brought them to the second floor of the Presidential Library where they were saved, okay, and undamaged. 
So, uh, what's, what's the problem? What's going on? Well, when we get there, there is, Beauvoir um, House is severely damaged, which you'll see in a minute. And the two cottages, historic cottages, are obliterated. I mean, they're just gone. They're like this. Okay. Completely obliterated. <coughs> so the first thing that happened after the storm is that one, you're having a hard time communicating because cell towers are down. Okay. And number two, when you're on the site, you're in the 19th century. Okay. There is no electricity. There's no gas. No water. If you wanted to go buy gas, you can't because there's no what? There's no electricity. The gas pump at your gas station runs on electricity. No electricity, no gas. Okay? It's in the tank. <laughs> right? I was like, give me a bucket, somebody. Right? Okay. So there's no gas, there's no water, there's no electricity. Um, and the military is trying to close off streets, the National Guard, right? Um, so the, the issue was how to get at everything, how to start a recovery process, and where are we going to get help? I'm isolated, okay, as the director of the facility, right? Because I'm working the whole day long, collapsing into a bed at night, Event. Well, actually, I was sleeping on a table the first couple of times on the second floor of the residential library. Then I moved to a building on the back part of the property. It was actually a house. And we got it sort of fixed up, and I could, could move in there and, uh, and crash at night. But I had no, I don't know what AASLH is doing. I don't know what the NEH is doing. I don't know what the, uh, you know, Humanities Council is doing. So we're working very hard, and it's like they said, there's no leaves on the trees, and it's 100 degrees, right? Very, very hot. And they show, where are we all? We all in the, y'all in the, uh, in a van? Or we're in the motorhome. You're in the motorhome. Motor yeah, yeah, the motorhome. We right. didn't have a van. Like, Man, what are the tourists doing here? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I didn't know who this was. And so they start getting out. We were the great And they say, well, you know, um, we're here to help. And these two teams that visited, uh, Michelle's team was one of them, were a great help because they said, look, there's money for you that you can get, emergency grants from the NEA and the National Endowment for the Humanities that can help you pay for supplies and to maybe pay a salary for your curator because you have no money coming in. So they were great in terms of they actually sat down, one of the teams actually sat down the laptop and started typing in and filling out the form for me because I had nothing. It was great. And so <clears throat> the funds that came in allowed us to help us pay for the salaries going through the next year, okay? And that was immense help to us, and we were also bringing in eventually some assistance to come in and help our curator. So it's hard to say right now how important this was because, for at least from my perspective as a director, maybe not in other locations, I was really cut off um, uh, from well, the rest of the world <laughs> for a few, many weeks, okay? So, um, so what the heart teams did was really very helpful. For example, we got NEH, we got 30,000, and the NEA, we got 10K. So 
that's 40,000 together to help pay for supplies and everything that we would need and to help keep our curator on staff. And um, so they were helping us with the very basic things of getting the application in. And this was very difficult in a modern world with computers and online things, and you don't have any of that, okay? So this is one of the few times I missed my mom's Underwood typewriter. So, <laughs> right? so does everyone know what an Underwood typewriter is? <laughs> <laughs> um, I asked my students in my college class uh, who Steve McQueen was, and I got nothing. And I was upset the whole day. <laughs> Um, so contacts made with the heart team members provided us with individuals such as Michelle who liaised uh, with our institution for much larger grants such as our grant institution of getting 250000 from the Watson Brown Foundation, which was immensely helpful to the institution in the first few years after all of that occurred. Now additional assistance came was, uh, for example, later on, in 2006, a person from Mid-America Arts and Life named Leslie Zabilic, who's now, I think, with the Heinz Center up in uh, Pennsylvania, uh, <coughs> came in and she uh, assisted us with a future interpretive plan, which is a requirement that we needed for an IMLS grant. Okay, right? You've got to do the bigger grants or you've got to jump through more hoops. Right? And so she came in and helped us out with that. Um, and also the IMLS grant would continue that curator's funding, collections-related funding that started with the NEA and NEH grants. All right, how am I doing on time, by the way? Is it bad or? Okay, all right. So, uh, so we got that grant, and that helped bring um, the organization through 2007. This is after I had left. But through 2007, it helped them pay for these curators and the assistants to help recover and restore these collections. And that was, I think, about around 45K we got on that. It also helped pay with the new, new library schematics from our architect, okay? So, uh, just an example of some of the institutions that showed up to help us were Savannah College of Art and Design, SCAD, right? I still got the hat with it. St. Olaf's College, where is that, Minnesota, Wisconsin? Minnesota, right? <laughs> right, the Canadian Navy. <laughs> yeah, they, they parked their ship off the coast <laughs> and they lightered in part of the crew, right? Like 20, 25, maybe more than that, maybe 35 members of the crew. And we put them to work and they cleared rubble out of a section of the presidential library. And they were great. I mean, they got, they got right to it. Uh, and this is just a few. You know, we had college students. We had all kinds of volunteers from tourism groups, national tourism organizations. Um, let's go through a couple of the, the slides here. So that was um, the house I was living in. This is another view of that same house. This would have been the front porch. and um, So you can see the devastation. You also see all the plastic paper bags in the trees. Right? Convenience store has lots of what? Right. Mm -hmm. okay. So here we are underneath Beauvoir House. Here's uh, one of the men, I think it's one of our board members, working on that. See, we salvaged some lumber and we were starting to stack it up and trying to triage and organize everything. And this is the corner post of Beauvoir House. And then beyond it, out here, would have been the porch, okay, that would have had its own brick pillars, right? And that just got totally destroyed. So they got ripped off. Uh, next one, please. 
as another board member, uh, one of my employees, great employee there, uh, Quentin Kirsten, helping us out. We're going to see some of the bricks uh, from the destroyed post out front were thrown underneath the uh, Beaupont house. And here we are just trying to check on underneath everything to see if everything is sturdy from a structural standpoint. <coughs> Next one, please. Uh, this are the giant, uh, how many people have been to Beaupont house? But you have, you have. Well, you know, they have these large uh, pocket doors, you know, like 10 feet high, right? They're separating the house. And you can see here, taking this photo through the doors, you can see this is where part of the roof got ripped off. Because the roof comes down over the porch and it's all intertwined, right? It's interconnected. So when the porch goes, <laughs> it took a little bit of the front roof with it. Okay. Uh, next one, please. Uh, this is some of the collections from the house, right? So you open up holes in the house and the winds and the water come in and they wreak havoc with all of that. So here's some damaged framed items, pictures, uh, some of the damaged furniture, these sort of ottomans that they used to have there in the, uh, in the center hallway, uh, which we know um, something like that was there, pardon me, from uh, some very old photographs of Beaufort House. So the Davises had that sort of ottoman. Um, next one, please. Here's another, this is a better picture. <laughs> Uh, showing a disaster palooza, right? So this is um, here, this was part of the front, uh, the balustrade, right? On the porch of the house, which we found laying out there, and we moved it in there temporarily. And uh, then you see more furnishings, damage, see some of the legs missing from the chairs, things of that nature, so lots of damage. Uh, portraits are still up on the wall, but they're damaged as well. Uh, next one, please. Uh, ah, the frescoes, right? Surface frescoes in the main parlor at Beauvoir House. Well, once again, that roof has been taken off, right? You can see parts of it, right? So the roof is taken off and ripped, and so it just takes it and it did like that, right? Okay, next one. So here's the outside of Beauvoir House. This is the front that faces um, the golf and um, the down trees. Uh, no leaves on the trees, right, or very few. <clears throat> and you can see here, this is where the porch would have been. And then it would have wrapped around in a U-shape, right, around the front of the house, and the roof would have come down over it all the way. So all of this just got ripped out and thrown in pieces onto the back part of the property. Now these guys here, I call what they say in football an autumn. And uh, a friend of ours, a board member actually, <clears throat> brought us some tarps from old uh, billboards, right? So <laughs> I said, I've got to cover this up because if we get more rain, it's just going to do more damage to our collections before we get it out, and I don't know at this point when it's going to happen. So I went down to, I think it was the parking lot of the mall, which is on the beach, okay? So Dillard's got wiped out too, uh, <laughs> Uh, so I go down there and all of the guys from the power companies are there, right, when they're not busy doing, you know, restoring power and stuff, they're taking breaks, getting lunch, right, those sorts of things. I say, guys, I got to get some tarps on top of this roof. Can you guys come here because you've got bucket trucks and tack this onto the roof? It's going to look tacky, but at least there'll be some cover from the elements. And the guys were like, 
yeah, you do that. <laughs> right? And, so, and these two guys came with their two trucks. Look, you see, there's the other one there. There's the first truck. And they came there, and they, we tacked it up. We got some, some nails and some hammers from the back storage building. And they came in there, and the other front of the house said Ford dealership. So <laughs> uh, they did. They did. But the thing is, is we got it covered until the architect and a contractor could come in and, you know, replywood that front area. So, um, the next one, please. I got heat from that from some of my board members. Doing their, like, look, this is temporary. It's, I know it looks tacky, but maybe we can keep some of the water out if we get rain. We're actually very lucky because the first two months we got almost no rain. Right? Uh, how am I doing? Is this for two, two minutes? I'm going I'm gonna stop. Uh, anyway, this is more repairs. Uh, next slide, please. And uh, yeah, same thing. Next slide. Uh, this is us. Uh, one of my board members decided to build steps. I wanted to do a ramp, and we worked all day, and we built steps onto the front of the house. And next one. And this was what the presidential library looked before. All of this Oops. got wiped out, and this is the front of Beaumont House with the <laughs> see that <laughs> and uh, the steps so we could get in. So I'm gonna shut up now. <laughs> And, and one of the things that, that John touched on as well is uh, uh, mitigating mold. That, that was one of the things that I, I hadn't really thought about. You know, we had the conservators there that could give me some great advice about, you know, being careful about mold. Uh, we were in Slidell, and I walked into one of the buildings and forgot my mask and almost got sick immediately. Uh, so, and, and the, the, the big issue, too, was, I mean, I could feel it coming on, and I stepped back, and I was only in there for a few seconds, and I got sick. And, and uh, the, the thing that occurred to me was, now what am I going to do? I'm, I'm responsible for my team that's here. I've got to drive them out. I can't get to a doctor. I've got no place I can go. So for the next two days, I was fighting off this lung infection thing that I developed almost immediately. Uh, when we were in Erath, they, we got there a couple days after Rita. They had two feet of water that ran into the museum there, and they had a, a display case that had baseball memorabilia, and it looked like spiders had taken it over. So within just a two-day period of time from the humidity, uh, and these mold spores getting in there, it was just like poof, and it was just white with all of this mold growing inside these things, and mold on all the walls and, and everywhere else. So you had this issue. In fact, I was surprised looking at some of the, the, uh, the conservator pictures where they didn't have long sleeves on and things like that. Uh, one of the museum guys uh, working with me uh, tried to get a picture on the inside of a building, and that was one of the rules that I said, no, if, if there's nobody there, we can only do windshield surveys. We can only take pictures from outside. We don't go anywhere near a building, whether the door's open or not, because I don't want somebody to think they were looting or anything like that. But he decided he'd hang over inside the building to get a picture. The next day he had this fungus thing growing on his arm, which he wasn't sure you know, what he was gonna do about. And I said, well, here's what we're gonna do. You're gonna put on a long sleeve shirt and you're not going to touch me. Because I told you to stay out of the building. I'm not gonna get an infection from this. We have no doctors here and you're just gonna have to take that home with you. And I mean, that's, that's how serious we took it. We had two of the, the conservators walked off in Abbeville, and when they came back, I said, my rule of thumb for passing this assignment is if I get 75% back. Because it was dangerous where we were going, and we didn't, the, the idea was you never lost eye contact with the rest of your team in these areas. Uh, when we were in Slidell, we were trying to find uh, an archival collection that had been identified by the uh, curator of the Guardians of Slidell Museum uh, she said that it had gone over to the fire department. 
So I went to the fire department to find out where it was at. Now the building on its, the outside really didn't look like it had changed much, but the insi entire inside of the building was gone because it had drywall. And of course, you know, with this water surging with the drywall, I mean, that, that was just gone. So this building was just a skeleton. And uh, there were some people in there trying to clean it up. And I said, well, I'm trying to find out what happened with this collection. And I'd let the two conservators with the curator, and I had uh, the museum guy with me, big fella, uh, walking along. And they, and they said, uh, well, you might want to go over to the police department and ask them. And I said, well, okay, where's that? And they pointed it out. And I walked over to the police department. I got there, it was kind of the same scenario, new 19, you know, 70s, 80s building, and it's completely gutted, and, uh, you know, it's just the, the frames of, of the metal framework and, and stuff inside it, and I said, well, I'm trying to find, you know, somebody who's an authority figure here that can help me out with this, and they said, well, you need to talk to the police, and I said, well, where did I find the police? They said, that hot dog shack over there. So I go over, and there's a hot dog shack, and there's a police officer behind the counter, and I said, well, I've got some questions for you. I'm not sure if I should ask you the questions or just order a hot dog. He said, uh, well, this is kind of what we've been reduced to. And before I could ask him what had happened to the collection, uh, a gentleman pushed me out of the way and, and said, uh, I need, to the, to the police officer, I need you to come over to my house. My neighbor just took a shot at me. And the police officer said, well, you know, you guys are going to have to resolve that issue among yourselves because I'm the only person here. And at that point, I said, well, if he's not able to help me, we're just going to kind of drift back here and finish up what we've got and uh, head out. Because, uh, yeah, if anything had gone wrong, there was no police protection. There was nobody you could call. There was no hospitals. There was none of, none of these things that are, you know, we kind of take for granted because they're easy to find. You couldn't call 911 if, and if your phone worked, you're not going to have anybody showing up either. So you were kind of on your own. So we, we had to be very careful about what we did. We had to be very careful about not getting injured because that was going to be very problematic. And we had to be real careful about dealing with, with anybody who might be a little bit crazy out there. And there were a lot of crazy people out there. Um, so that was another factor that we were kind of tying in as you're trying to work with your stuff and you're looking at this devastation, you're also having to pay very close attention to uh, uh, things like mosquitoes and, and apparently alligators, which I, I had uh, taken into effect when I was there. Uh, so questions or, or comments or, or anything like that that you guys have, like I said, because we're recording this, we'll have to repeat the question back so we can hear it. Right. So I was interested to hear you say all the organizations that tried to send help and teams in, but there was no coordination. Has there been any lessons learned from that? So for the next disaster, there would be less duplication? Okay, for the purposes of the recording, um, she's asking about uh, the duplication that we experienced uh, going in with all the different organizations. And if anything has resolved since then, if there's more uh, conversation. And the answer to that is no. Uh, the, um, the AIC uh, trying to get these uh, disaster response networks, uh, and we have the two in Georgia and things like that, um, they're, not, they're still really not talking to each other. And that's really kind of unfortunate. Uh, I have a little bit of an update on that. Oh, good.
Now you're going to have to repeat yes, that. Yes, we'll have Michelle, to repeat so all of that. that. Let's see. Okay, so um, <laughs> the Heritage Emergency, Emergency National Task Force is now uh, umbrellaed, if I'm understanding right, under FEMA and, and the Smithsonian. And just in a nutshell, there are 20 of the Alliance for Response organizations throughout the country um, with, hopefully, <laughs> if everything goes well, uh, ones forming in Mississippi and New Orleans. Uh, and we did put together a little um, bibliography if you don't have a disaster plan for your museum. Here's some tools for that. Um, we didn't show a lot of disaster porn today intentionally, uh, but there's a whole bunch on our Flickr site. So uh, that, uh, the link to that is there in case you are a disaster porn junkie and want to see just what we saw. Uh, it's all there. And thank you for the update. I, I do want to address the, the acronym of AIC because we've used it a few times. It's the uh, Arizona, it's the American Institute of Conservators. Uh, right, so when we said that a few times and nobody really clarified what exactly that was. Uh, just one thing, um, as a follow-up to what the heart teams did and everything, I met uh, like we're growing one business, Debbie Hess Norris from Winnether, and they put together a, a grant application and Andrew Mellon Foundation gave them over $400,000 and they recruited a team led by Catherine Williams from Austin, Texas, a conservatory. And um, they brought a lot of students, uh, grad students, I guess, from the Winneter program down to the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And they worked with uh, not only our institutions, but others. And they worked in um, Jackson, Mississippi in the summer of 06 as a team, uh, working on all of these damaged artifacts and everything. It was very, very impressive what they did yeah, they restored the paintings, uh, portraits at the Beauvoir House in 06 and 07. And um, uh, the grant paid for Williams and her expenses and I think the travel and everything like that. So it was, and they also did workshops for citizens about taking care of their own collections, their family photographs, things of that nature. Um, so it was very uh, impressive what they did and, and just all the help given by the people here at this table with me and everyone else at Monitor and um, uh, the agencies that step forward with grant funds like IMLS, NEH, NEA. Uh, I, I probably haven't said this to everybody, but thank you so much for all that you did. I, uh, we see each other and talk intermittently, and, uh, but it uh, really was wonderful what they accomplished and what they did. And um, I think it's, it's really wonderful what, what they did to help us respond. Um, one, <clears throat> one of the things, I was on team two, and uh, we found, for instance, I'll address past Christian, um, there was nobody there. There was nobody at the historical society. There was no way of contacting anybody. They never came forward. Um, it was, it looked like the pictures I've seen of Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. Um, we did talk to the minister of the uh, Episcopal Church, which had been rebuilt to um, withstand a Camille-type storm. Um, so we weren't able to accomplish anything in past Christian, um, which was about four days into the trip. What we were able to do, uh, being there the second week, um, second eight days, which was actually, uh, John said something about being there a month after. But we were there five weeks after, and that was team two. So it must have been later than really? we were there. Okay. But Even later. the idea was 
that we went to places like the Railroad Museum in Gulfport where two employees were inside the museum and they were there all day long and the museum was closed up tight because they were worried about um, vandalism. And we convinced them to get out of the museum because there was both green and black mold there. So um, a lot of what we did on Team 2 uh, throughout the area was to convince people that, number one, they had to do uh, a lot of triage work and, and, and use a lot of equipment that they didn't really have at the time um, to uh, protect themselves, and that the most important thing was to protect themselves. We could not convince those two men to leave the Gulfport Railroad Museum. Um, in Pascagoula, the museum there, um, they didn't even remove things off the wall that were original documents because they weren't sure that they were allowed to and things like that. And we did convince them to get the stuff over to the library, which they did eventually move. And in Biloxi, the fire museum, we bought approximately $300 worth of, of, of um, t-shirts, hats, and stuff from the Biloxi Museum just to help to support them. The fire chief, um, who was also the head of the museum, had lost uh, 17 citizens of Biloxi, and he knew them all personally. Mm -hmm. So he was going through PTSD at the same time that he was trying to show us the museum and what had been destroyed there um, at the museum. So it was a situation where we were just doing what we could at the time. We did not expect to find most of what we found there. Um, it was all new, it was all strange. We had my computer, which they hadn't told us even to bring, and we were going on trying to find out the different places there, and that was difficult to begin with. And there wasn't really as much communication between the teams as we would have liked there to be. So in retrospect, um, we were faced with passing on information uh, from that we'd gotten from Team 1 and on to Team 3. And really, um, there wasn't as much as, as we really needed there. So Well, that, that, that's where we, we, we saw the successes in, in Louisiana because we, we were kind of able, well, at least my team was, you know, Team 1, wasn't very effective, but we were able to pass everything down that we had learned, all the mistakes we had we made, where we could find stuff to the next guy so at least they wouldn't be duplicating right. the problems that we had. But when I look back at this retrospectively, and I hadn't even thought about this, because keep in mind, uh, you know, I'd taken, you know, 10 days off from work. I came back. I was busy. I just kind of let all of this be forgotten and then move forward. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to put together this session, because here I, I'm looking, it's like, gee, it's been 10 years. You know, did we make a difference? Did we really, this whole effort of 40-something people going out in the field, risking their health and all of these other things, did we actually make a difference? And, and we, we apparently did, you know, and, and hearing some of the people talk, but we also were looking at these, these cultural resource institutions and, and mostly museums because that's the list that we had to work off of. We weren't thinking about so much the libraries unless we were informed that there's a library co uh, collection, and we certainly weren't thinking about 
the archives in municipalities, the towns and, and government documents like that too. Those weren't even on the radar, and I think that's very unfortunate can for I, us. Can I make a final comment about that? Because you know, and we are Bev, if you were, you were two, you were a month after, so we were six six weeks after the storm, and after we had cleaned up the uh, historical society and we were congratulating ourselves, we just started wandering around, and we found the city's. Uh, municipal records in the same condition in a in a locker in the damaged city city hall it had not been looked at for six weeks and these were probably more significant records because they're property deeds and, and court records and things like that so as disaster plans are produced and especially if you've got an institution in a in a city don't think about just the historical records in your building, but in the community, mm -hmm. and include those. One, one of the important things that we did was find out <coughs> what uh, places were okay. And in um, in past Christianity, for instance, the library was okay. So a lot of the stuff was moved to the library. Right. In Biloxi, um, there was nothing. There was nothing that was in in uh, uh, Gulfport, the library had decided in their infinite wisdom that they would turn the air conditioning on during the day and turn it off at night to save electricity. Well, then all of the moisture that had accumulated during the night <clears throat> when the air conditioning is turned on and off goes to the only place that it can possibly penetrate, and that's the books because all the shelves are made of metal. So it, it started to create mold worse than the mold that had been there for the time that they were um, <coughs> waiting to see what they could do and get the electricity back on. And we're actually out of time, <coughs> uh, but please grab a handout. I've got some other materials uh, that you're welcome to look at, and we'll thank you for coming. We'll be here. And if you to want talk. to share yes. stories, come on out. Please, sure. yeah, sit here with us and Bev. And yeah. We're just glad I'm going to run to the boys' room. <laughs> and if I had to record that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely, Vince. Right, I'll be right back. <laughs> it was amazing you all didn't get sick. It was, it was really fuzzy. It was really, really fuzzy.